right, we're recording. Hey, good Seth, to go. you want to get on the mic still? Yeah, you want to get on the mic still? This is Cecily. That's cool. Hello, Cecily. And that's Cello. Hey. Oh, we're about to record. Thank you for the Wi-Fi, by the way. She looks like she has a plethora of degrees. <laughs> he says... Here, you can <laughs> <laughs> Hello? What's up, Hi Cecily? There. What up? What did you say I look like what? You look smart. I said you look you, very That's not what you said. What if I take these off? That is not what you said. Oh, it's like Clark Kent. <laughs> what? You look like you have a plethora of degrees. <laughs> I only have one degree. Okay. Well, it's nice to meet you. And it's the deodorant I wear. Uh, she got jokes. <laughs> She's got jokes. No, I do have a degree. She wants to be on ramp, she said. Yeah? Oh, nice. Everybody I don't even know ramp. what a Bitcoin is. Oh, that's... you're sitting next to the yeah, man to tell you. Perfect. Person. He told me, yeah. He, um, I got a lecture. It was pretty cool. It wasn't a lecture. Was it a lecture? It was a lecture. No, I mean, it was an informative. Uh, no, it wasn't a lecture. You're right. It was, was um, feel good. It was a lecture. I gave her a, a three-minute conversation on inflation and deflation, so she knows all about it. It now. blew my mind. I'm going to make money off Bitcoin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Is that not the point? That seems to be the point. We're trying to get... Just trying to get away from that being the point. Oh, okay. <laughs> I don't know if you want to put me on here because I might be the dumbest person. <laughs> nope. Nope. I'm like, uh, nope. cool. Definitely not. <laughs> Lil B was by far the dumbest oh. person we were at on. So. <laughs> and we used a soundbite for 50 episodes. Oh. Yeah. Welcome to the Bitcoin Podcast, we in outshine. Bitcoins, we got them. Acquire, never sell. But catch us rolling deep like a Dell. Bitcoin, blockchains, cryptocurrencies. Three guys faded talking Bitcoin, no fee. That's the free Bitcoin podcast, insane. And adoption is still the only thing. Hey everybody, welcome to the Bitcoin Podcast, episode number 129. I'm your first host, Marcello. And I'm host number two, D. Host number three, Corey. How goes it? Man, how many episodes are we on? He literally literally just said it. I know, I'm a bad (laughs) listener. I'm a terrible listener. Was one twenty seven? Twenty nine. One twenty nine. One twenty nine. Jeez, man. What can we say? We used to say things like, "We've now done enough episodes that our show is old enough to drink." We were on like episode twenty one. <laughs> well, what is what is one hundred and twenty nine hours? It's one, it's one hour more than it took for James Franco to cut his arm off. <laughs> <laughs> There you go. It's, right now, you'd be armless if you were James Franco. Yeah. yeah. 129 hours is like uh, how long people spend playing um, Fallout. In one sitting. <laughs> yeah, one sitting. You die. Die. Garbage. Anyways. Yeah, man. It's been a, it's been a long stint. Episode 129. That's good to hear. 
let's let's think about this, right? So like let's 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 look at the space, right? The space of what we'll now even just call blockchain, which is different than what we would call when we started the show. Mm-hmm. Is way different. Way different than it was when we started the show. Got into it because Bitcoin was a shit. It was the only mm-hmm. thing around that was even remotely legitimate. Mm-hmm. Anything else was essentially an avenue to get to Bitcoin. Now I'd say uh, things are much, much, much different than what that is. So we have Ethereum rising rapidly, becoming, I don't know, the platform for a lot of different, I wouldn't, so I was reading an article, it's, it's just changed the way the argument goes. I was reading an article today that talks about how Bitcoin or Ethereum doesn't have a ideology associated with it. It is somewhat agnostic to the reason behind people getting into it. Whereas the ideology that started Bitcoin was very much this cypherpunk crypto anarchism that really drove the narrative and the development and the reason why a lot of people got into the platform in the first place. Mm-hmm. And Ethereum doesn't doesn't have that. And some people view that as a positive because a more agnostic platform can be catered to whatever ideology you want, right? You can build whatever you want on top of something that doesn't really give a shit about what you care about. Whereas mm-hmm. if the idea behind getting into Bitcoin is only a specific way, when you butt buck up against that ideology, you're going to meet a lot of resistance, which is kind of what we're seeing in terms of the scalability wars going on in Bitcoin. You have a, you have a, you have an idea, you have, you have an opinion on all that? I do have an opinion. One idea, ideas, tend to have a li- a shelf life and then they evolve into something else. They'll either perpetuate, but they're never going to be the original what they are. The pre-image, you know what I mean? Like the pre-image of an idea is never identical to the I don't think it ever is. And I think that Bitcoin started out, like you said, as this great thing, like, oh, it's free, super duper money that you know, it's, it's got all this ideas evolved around like f the government we don't need no stinking government but now everything has come not full circle but it's almost like a 180 where bitcoin is in dire need of some sort of governance structure and then you add on that layer of its mysterious nature of how it started and then you got ethereum coming in ethereum doesn't have a mysterious origin it's a young kid 20 something years old I, I can't call him a kid because that's rude. He's an adult. The young guy, you know, makes Ethereum just for the sake of making Ethereum. It's a totally, like you said, it's a totally different origin story. And so that origin story, if you ask me honestly, does have a better fit with what gels with mass populace. Nobody likes anarchy. Yeah, people like anarchy. And, and, yeah, there's people out there that like anarchy, but most people do not like anarchy. You know what I do like is that when I get in my car, I'm traveling on well-built built roads, and I'm tra- I got electricity that's that's pretty smooth. I don't get a lot of brownouts. I got running water. All that's caused because of the opposite of anarchy. So if you kind of ha- tie ideas of anarchy to a thing, there's always going to be a good percentage of the population that is going to be opposed to it 
and they're not even going to be they're not even going to know why they're opposed to it they're just going to not feel good about it all right so where does like litecoin fit into this litecoin yeah it's it's along the same lines as ethereum How it's so? not really agnostic but you at least know the origins it's some guy not some guy we know exactly who he is Satoshi Light comes in, he's like, oh, Bitcoin's really cool, but I think it's a little slow. I think there needs to be a lighter version of it. Can I take a pause here and ask what the hell that noise is in the background? Yeah, dude. Is that a bird? What is happening? Is this, is, a, is a baby squirrel getting killed, like strangled in the background? What's going on? No, that's when you don't have a lot of money and you have a piece of shit washer and dryer. That's your dryer? I think so. <laughs> <laughs> What the okay. hell? I thought that was like a parrot You're going right. nuts. There's birds. All right. Donate right, so. to Marcello's Bitcoin washer funds. Yeah. We can fix that. <laughs> Make our <laughs> audio quality better by fixing Marcello's washer. He needs, Cello needs a new washer. Hashtag new washer for Cello. That's and speaking sweet. speaking of that, since we're, since we're working on funds, Cello, hit him with this advertisement. All right. Um, we're brought to you each and every week by Escrow My Bits dot com it's fast it's super easy and it only takes three steps all you got to do is register and deposit your bitcoin seller ships the item buyer checks the goods and releases the funds and they even offer you the ability to split the fee with the other party and they're locked they're in a locked exchange rate so no matter where you are in the world wherever you're listening to this podcast you can use the service so it's really awesome and we really believe in it uh escrow my bits was great to solve all the problems wrong with the type of escrow services currently around their goal is to make using escrow as simple as possible. And I think that they nailed it. So Corey, Dimitrik, and I, we want there to no longer be any excuses on why not to use a service. So start that escrow process, go to their website, make sure you sign up for their newsletter and stay up to date where you can escrow your shit with escrow my bits. That. Anyway, so moving on to what D was saying, uh, I'm going to change it up a little bit and say that like, I feel that, the only thing that matters is the use cases and the usability of the blockchain that we're talking about. And because for years now, we've discussed that, and I, and I, and I strongly feel that like when this thing reaches mass adoption, the only thing that matters is whether or not a end user can do something better than what they could do beforehand for either cheaper, faster, more secure, so on and so forth. Or they can do something they couldn't do beforehand based on the traditional infrastructure. And if you're not providing one of those things, then the ideology that pushes whatever you're doing doesn't really matter because in the end of the day, these platforms are built on giant communities. And the larger the community, the more it's worth. And you have to have the end user care about what you're doing, regardless of what ideology that pushes what you're doing. So if you can't Boy. provide those types of things, then it's it's you're, you're wasting your time. But don't we say a lot of the times that the end user, the way this, the, I think a theory of how things will play out, like we said, is that the end user will be none the wiser. You're Bitcoin's right. Bitcoin's moving money around, moving data around, and or Ethereum and. That's cool. But right now, Bitcoin can't provide any services to the average everyday user for the American. 
So we've not for blocked, the Americans, so, but for a lot of people. All right. So we've oh, blocked out. Are too high. We've blocked out all of those uses that could potentially be part of the network because we don't cater to the Americans. If it costs mm. if it costs two fifty to do a transaction on Bitcoin, no one's going to use Bitcoin. So the network can't it, it literally can't grow. It becomes a storage of value. All right, that's cool. If we call it a storage of value and that's what it's for, then that's the narrative. But we can no longer call Bitcoin the decentralized cash of the world because that's not what it is. We have to move on to something else, which Ethereum and Litecoin may provide that solution. Hyperledger may provide that solution. Something else will, but we have to stop calling Bitcoin that thing if it no longer provides that service. In the future, it may, but as of right now, certainly it doesn't. doesn't. So no. if, if, Bitcoin, if Bitcoin becomes a settlement network, I wonder how much of the Bitcoin can't be used because the fee to include an input is greater than the amount of Bitcoin that the input is worth. All right. Well, it also depends on how fast. Like, what's so? What's the transaction backlog of the network right now? It's, I don't know, sitting at two hundred thousand transactions of just backlog transactions that aren't aren't getting put into blocks. Now mm -hmm. that may be potentially be cleared up once something does happen in Bitcoin or use cases move elsewhere. That backlog will be cleared up, so the fee will adjust appropriately. Or so, in essence. If you have a low priority transaction, you can send something for 10 cents. It's just going to take a really long time to clear. If we don't have this backlog, it may not take that long to clear. But the point of the network won't be for low transaction, like low fee transactions. It'll be for high priority transactions that require like large, large amount of money for a high amount of security, which is a good thing. If we just mm -hmm. have that, it's still incredibly innovative. Yeah, I mean, but the narrative has Bitcoin, to change. Even if it doesn't upgrade and it stays just a storage of value, it becomes the best storage of value that's ever existed. That's still like, even that's what I'm saying. It's like even in failure mode, right? Let's say Bitcoin is not the cash that everybody's walking around with their fancy USBs and they're spending, they're tapping on, they're tapping on, they're tapping on uh, NFC, near field communicators, blah, 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 whatever. We don't get that future. But even if we do get a future where Bitcoin exists, it's still the best storage of value that's ever existed. But you can't uh, counterfeit it. You could have made you could make fool's gold back in the day. You could take a rock and you could paint it gold, and people would say, like, oh my god, look at that big nugget of gold. I'll give you three houses for it. And you're like, gotcha, bitch. That's fool's gold, but that I got maybe three houses. Happened once. Yeah, can you name happen. can you name a technical system which has no limits? A what? A technical system that has no limits? No, there's yeah, no Bitcoin. such thing that has no limits. Yeah. It's, it's period. There is no such computational system that has no limits. No limit records. I don't know. Uh, that failed too. Yeah, that <laughs> failed too. I mean, how, how else can... The Lightning Network. The Lightning Network theoretically has no limits. Oh, what so limits? how... Yeah, because well... Mm -hmm. Everything how do you has prioritize limits. demand? Oh, well, we've, we've, we've discussed this before. There is an unbounded need for free transactions on a global... Yes, network. there is. But there has to be a layer. There has to be another layer to Bitcoin to allow so, it to do that. Well, if you don't want to span the network, if, you want to like, if you'd like to really scale something in a real world where people want to do things, then you have to have a, a, at least some type of fee market 
that properly incentivizes the types of things people use the network for. If you want the network to be for certain use cases, then the incentivization to use that network has to be aligned with those use cases. So everyone has to be incentivized and the user used to be incentivized by insanely cheap transactions, but now the user is not incentivized by no, that anymore. So not, they're going to Bitcoin. other places. Not on Bitcoin. Huh? So not on Bitcoin. On Litecoin they are. And sure. on Ethereum they are. Sure. But not on Bitcoin. The miners are incentivized by brand new Bitcoin. And guess what? Their incentive structure is built really good for them right now. Because one Bitcoin is worth almost two grand. So every ten minutes there's what? $25,000 being handed out to somebody? 12.5? Yeah. Yeah. So here's a here's here's something that I think is interesting. So we we keep talking about how Bitcoin may have shrugged out a good amount of the like the use case of potentials the potential amount of people who would use cryptocurrency because the fees are so high. Now, if they move to a different cryptocurrency, then those networks grow drastically. And the reason that they're cheap right now is because they're relatively small compared yeah, to Bitcoin. That's a good point. Now, a good point. if everybody moves to those networks, there's a potential that they get just as big and just as congested mm -hmm. and just as complicated. And since like, like Litecoin, Litecoin works in the same fee mechanism granted it has segwit there's a there's a bit of a difference there but if it gets super congested the same problem may arise when it gets the same type of level of congestion as it is in bitcoin now so it's only a temporary fix potentially we don't know mm -hmm. we're moving there now because right now the fees are small but by moving there we may increase the fees in the near future yeah, so it's really hard to say. Like, things, Ethereum is a very is a drastically different blockchain, meant for different purposes. Yeah. There are other blockchains that try to deal with these types of things, but it's really hard to say because all in all, all of it is brand new. Yeah. It's it's we have to take it, it a day at a time. Like I don't want the, the the notion of this podcast to be like Bitcoin's unusable. Use Litecoin or Ethereum. It's due to the circumstances of Bitcoin being incredibly popular and in, and incredibly successful. It's Bitcoin is currently hard to send. It's expensive to use. Yep. So, I figured it out. Go ahead. How about this? Bitcoin can be split and joined down the one Satoshi unit in the same way that fiat has many denominations. So you can combine, you know, 10 dimes and then ask for a dollar bill in exchange. So transactions can include like an automatic combine and split. And you're actually paying for the combine and split and not the actual money transfer. And that'd be cheaper. Boom. If I gave you $5 in cash, it, it's, it doesn't cost anything for me to do that, right? We can just do that back and forth inevitably forever. I could just keep giving mm -hmm. each other back and forth $5. And so in order to have digital cash, there needs to be some type of fee associated with it. So if I, and if I do the equivalent in a digital sense using Bitcoin, eventually I can only give you $5 because it costs too much to do that. Mm -hmm. In order to use the network, you have to pay to use the network. So 
the, the cash analogy doesn't quite work anymore. So if if my account holds one Bitcoin, I can't look at that as like 100 times 0 0.01 transaction outputs and to put all of that in like in a single Bitcoin payment, you could make a transaction that takes 100 inputs? No. That would increase the length of the transaction and it's the transaction length that you pay for. Yeah, you, you pay by the complexity of a transaction. Pay by the bit byte, right? So that wouldn't work. I don't quite get what you're asking. Well, <laughs> I'd have to see it on paper. I'm a little. Trans see it on paper there, transfer, Transactions don't transfer money between accounts. Transactions transfer money from the previous transaction outputs to new transaction outputs. They go from an output to an input. Right. So an output for me is an input to your wallet. Right. Mm -hmm. And that eventually goes into another output that is then tied to my original output and all the outputs that came before. I see what you're They're saying, Shalom, of... but that's not the way the world works. If you want a currency, you have to deal with multiple people, and and, and that's it. There's a, there's like a a time constraint to how people interact with each other. And well, right, but it, it needs to become easier and more intuitive, though. Let's think about how many. One, okay. How many transactions does a person do per day? Like, that's what you, that's what this all boils down to, right? How many transactions a person does in a day? People don't tend to make that many transactions in a day. Think about it. If you're making like more than 10 transactions in a day, then you better own a store. Like, I mean, that's a lot. Like, I've made five. Even me, I, I made five today. Five transactions. I've made. I've made three transactions. I made five. Five. So let's average that together. We're a little over four, right? Four point two something. Ten. Four point three, three, three. Four point three. <laughs> All right. Four point three. Three, 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 three. Okay, so. I mean. Well, then you stick some multipliers on that bad boy. So let's say we're not going to go down that, that math road that I'm going down. But what I am trying to say is that the, every time you increase the transactional velocity, you're increasing the fees, and Bitcoin becomes something that becomes really expensive, right? So here's another thing that we don't think, a hypothetical. What if Bitcoin gets these SegWit upgrades and then Lightning Network comes on without, without like any sort of problems? Then all of a sudden, Bitcoin's free to use again. Then, uh oh, oh wait, what happens wait, to life? Not so much. So, there's a there's an aspect of that I don't think you'll realize. So, when you use the Lightning Network, you have every opened and closed channel has two on-chain transactions associated with it. Mm -hmm. Which means that if you have a Bitcoin transaction associated with like two dollars, I'll just say two dollars. That's four dollars for a, a a micro payment channel. Now, if all of the transactions of your micro payments don't account for four dollars, what's the point of using micro payments? Make it account for four dollars. Well, it's it still bucks out everything below four dollars. 
yeah, it's cool for certain use cases. And you can you can then, you know, leapfrog different multi different lightning channels into other channels, so on and so forth. You don't have to open up a channel for every single person you talk to, but the fact that a fee costs a certain amount will always mean that you're bucking out a certain use case associated with using that network, which means that people who want to do that type of thing will have to go somewhere else because you can't do it on Bitcoin. It's just not monetarily feasible. You can't stop that. If the yeah. base fee is a certain amount, you can't do anything under that base fee. It's hardwired to that way. So, so which, which is fine. That's perfectly fine. I'm cool with that. But the narrative associated with how we talk about these things has to change. How do we change it? Fucking don't say Bitcoin's used for those things. Say go somewhere else. There's a lot of legitimate blockchains out there that can handle these types of things. Litecoin being one of them. Ethereum being another. Just be okay with that. I've been talking about, you know, fact of that there will be multiple networks that do different types of things, and that's fine. We'll have different coins for different use cases, which means that people have to understand. Well, uh, am I? Cool. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's what Andreas says all the time. His theory that there will be thousands of different networks that do different things because that's what they're good at, and so that's what people use them for what's, what's wrong I think with that, that? If, if things get to that point then you have to have a wallet that can just do all things you have to have a swiss army knife of a wallet well that's just like there's a business spin there's money. a business yeah open that business swiss armies dude I, i'm gonna i need to go swiss army knife tomorrow and say i've got an idea for you swiss army knife company <laughs> i know you've only made knives but we got let's, something uh, coming down the pipe. Let's, uh, let's transition to the, uh, the interview. I, w- I want to get into this interview because I really enjoyed it. Well, let me pay one more bill because I, I want to shout out uh, Gil and Athena Bitcoin for sending us some swag. Uh, I'm going to be giving that to you guys soon. Um, really cool hats, really comfortable shirts, um, and we're going to be rocking that. So we're brought to you by Athena Bitcoin. They just happen to be the most trusted name in Bitcoin ATMs, and they're located in Fort Worth, Dallas, Houston, and a bunch of other U.S. cities. So download that Athena Bitcoin wallet on the App Store or Google Play for specific locations and more information. Visit AthenaBitcoin.com. And uh, if you go to Ken Bozak's meetups in Philly, everyone's going to be outfitted in uh, Athena Bitcoin swag. So uh, we're also brought to you by Athena Bitcoin's portfolio company, BitQuick.co. They are secure and easy peer-to-peer Bitcoin marketplace where you can get Bitcoin for cash in as little as three hours. BitQuick has been serving Bitcoiners since 2013, so where there's a bank, there is BitQuick. So like what Corey was saying, our guest this week is Nick Johnson, who is a software engineer at Ethereum. And we got him on the show mainly because he's kind of that rare kind of human who is equally comfortable debugging code, solving production issues on a deadline, giving a talk at a tech conference, or helping other developers on Stack Overflow. Uh, too bad the audio quality is hot garbage juice. It started out, it started out, started out nice, and then slowly but surely, people kept walking into the room and having conversations around him. Uh, I really enjoyed this conversation with him, and I, I, I really look up to um, Nick and his ability to help the community 
I, I really don't understand how he's capable of doing all the things he does and helping everything, everyone around the different communities who have questions about all the things that he does and how Ethereum works in general. So I, I really um, enjoyed talking to him and, and, and want people to understand that he's, he is a, a real jewel in what I hope this world becomes in blockchain. So power through the, the audio, it's, it's worth it for the content alone. Joel, well, you know, one of these centuries, I'm going to be able to get on another. Maybe one day. Like, yeah, I need to take a day off just so I can get in. Losing my chops. All right, well, without further ado, Nick Johnson. Here it is. All right, today we are here with... Nick Johnson from Ethereum. He's a you know quite the Ethereum developer, and I would say mostly responsible for the Ethereum name system currently being um, currently taking place to kind of pinpoint or put a put a human readable name to a hash. Uh, but I think he'd be better off explaining who he is and where he came from. So, what like what brought you into the this blockchain space in general? And um, tell me, I guess your story about how you got here. So I, I've been involved for perhaps less time than most. Um, I got first got involved with Ethereum about nine months ago. Um, and I, I remember vaguely looking at it during the crowd sale and sort of going, oh, that's kind of interesting. I should check it out later. Never doing anything to my lasting regret. Uh, but about nine months ago, um, I sort of more or less by chance uh, started looking into it some more and, and realized that what they built here was a, a really awesome platform. It's a, you know, general purpose computing platform that can do a, a great deal of stuff and, and opens up some really new avenues in building infrastructure. And, and building infrastructure is something that, for whatever reason, really interests me. Uh, so I sort of got involved in the community and, and very rapidly was, was offered a position as a developer on the, the Go Ethereum team by the, the Ethereum Foundation. Um, started working on that, uh, did a little bit of work on, on Swarm, the distributed storage system. And uh, more or less concurrently with all of that, uh, started looking at, you know, digging into the infrastructure and wanting to know uh, everything I could about, about how it functioned and noticed the, the distinct lack of a, a good naming system. Um, there had been one or two attempts around when the network was first created, but they were fairly sort of straightforward and basic. They just allowed associating one non-hierarchical name with, you know, one account address and maybe some, some swarm content if you're lucky. Uh, they weren't really extensible. There was no support for, for delegating authority or uh, multiple implementations. Um, and so I started playing around with ideas for a, a better, more robust, more versatile name system. Um, and that's where eventually, after a couple of false starts, ENS came from. All right. That's like a, before we dive into the ENS, which is, I guess, uh, in my opinion, one of the more fascinating projects in the whole of the space, uh, what's your what's your background like? Where did you come from before you actually decided to dive into to Ethereum? So I'm a software engineer by trade for going on about 14 years now. Um, I've uh, worked all over the world, and or at least all over English-speaking countries uh, in Ireland, Australia, Canada, and uh, New Zealand, and now in the UK. Um, I've spent about uh, six years total of my career working at Google, and uh, that's where I was working at the time when I sort of got addicted to the blockchain space and 
uh, sort of got tempted over by the feeling that, that we were building some some really new infrastructure here. It felt like I feel like I imagine some of the internet pioneers felt when they were building their infrastructure. Um, yeah, it's, it's one, of those, one of those things. That, I mean, I, I kind of felt the same way when I jumped into the space. Is that like it's it's one of the few things uh, that. I feel is really young yet will be incredibly impactful in the future. And a lot of the plays we see now are very infrastructure based. It's platforms, building platforms so people can build other things. And, and Ethereum is kind of the, I guess, more generalized version of a platform you can build a lot of things on. But which I, I feel you've seen because you've been trying to fix it for a long time. The usability of these platforms is, is, is not to where we can even start to think about mainstream adoption. Like yes. there's a lot of ramps you need to go through in order to start to utilize the whatever gains you can get from these platforms. And that's where the Ethereum name system comes in. Uh, can you just just give us a broad viewpoint of like what problem the Ethereum name system is trying to solve for those who don't know what it is? Mm -hmm. So the, the ultimate problem is that uh, pretty much all existing blockchains, um, when it comes to identifying users and user accounts, and in the case of things like Ethereum smart contracts um, and other resources, uh, use long cryptographically secure identifiers. Um, so if you want to uh, send me an Ether, uh, you have to send it to 0xfdb193, etc., 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 on for 64 characters. Um, and these uh, come in a number of different forms, like Bitcoin addresses and Ethereum addresses and so on, but they all share in common that they're long, they're effectively impossible to remember, uh, they're easily mistyped, and in some cases the consequences of mistyping it can be dire as well. Mm -hmm. um, as you say, in, in contrast to the fairly well-developed usability of the rest of the internet, where if I want to email you, I don't need to remember your IP address and your user account ID or something. I can just email you at a human-readable address. So ENS attempts to solve for Ethereum what DNS solved for the internet, which is to provide nice, convenient, short, human-readable names that refer to blockchain resources, primarily Ethereum addresses, uh, also Swarm hashes, so that you can host content on Swarm, in the future IPFS, uh, things like APIs and, and uh, whisper keys and so forth. In principle, it can be used to point to any resource, but we're focusing on Ethereum native ones to start. Mm -hmm. You got to start somewhere, and I think that's a really good broad a broad place to start in terms of usability. What, how are you maybe learning from previous implementations of something like this, like the DNS system and squatting and the dot com bubble? Like, what what are you doing to try and keep people from taking advantage of the system for further for for further market profiting? So, yeah, that's a, that's a really good question, and um, it's a really difficult problem to solve, unfortunately, because distinguishing a squatter from a legitimate user is more or less arbitrarily difficult. Any barrier you can put in place, they can evade by pretending to be a legitimate user, effectively. Um, so the approach we've tried to take is effectively to make squatting as unprofitable as possible. Uh, so what we've done is uh, assignment of new names at listed at the top level, so your name.eth. Uh, follows an auction process. So you open up an auction for the name you want. Um, the auction runs for three days during which people submit secret bids. And then you have a two-day period during which people attempt to reveal their bids. And the person who bid the most for the name uh, wins it. Um, but they only pay the price of the second highest bidder. So if I think that Ethereum.eth is worth 100 Ether and you think it's worth 150 Ether, then you win it, but you only pay out the Ether. 
Um, so the theory behind this is that uh, it's unattractive for a squatter because in order to win the domain and therefore be able to try and resell it to someone, they have to pay more than all their potential customers. If you win the domain, you then have to try and turn around and, and palm it off to someone else for more. But if they had wanted it then, then in theory at least, they would have participated in the auction and offered up as much as they were willing to pay. Because the way the sealed auction works is that the best strategy was to bid the maximum amount you're willing to pay, knowing you'll only pay as much as the next highest. Uh, whether this works out in practice remains to be seen. We have seen a lot of speculation on names so far. Um, it's difficult to know how many of these are, are serious users because it's such early days. Like the uh, uh, exchange.eth went for uh, 6,000 ether, so nearly $600,000. Um, but we have no way yet to know whether that was a legitimate exchange or whether it was which um, uh, whether it was you know a speculator hoping to sell it on later yeah um, so that's our goal and and even if we get squatting initially I, I hope that um, the lack of physical profits from squatters will discourage them from participating in the long run but uh, it will take time to find out whether we've succeeded or not yeah it's something I was reading about early on is uh, it's like how does a few questions here how does how do subdomains work um, under a under a, under a single domain, and I, I know that it was interesting because like if you could kind of go as far depth as you want to, and in terms of like the traditional system, the amount of lookups is proportional to the to the depth lookups, at, which could cause a lot of computational issues. But I think ENS solved this. That is that true? Like the single lookup basically for whatever depth you want to go into. Yes, that's true. So. Um, it does support hierarchical names, and the owner of any name can create subdomains. Uh, they can set up records on those, and they can also transfer ownership to, to other, uh, other owners. Um, and yes, you can translate any hierarchical name onto a hash, and that hash can be looked up in the, uh, the ENS contract with just a, sim a single request. So the end result is that it's just as efficient to look up through .var.baz.mycontract.myname.eth as it is to just look up myname.eth. Mm -hmm. um, and that's due to the, the hashing scheme we use and the way we sort of uh, prove ownership of domains and the ability to create subdomains. Interesting. And, and so how, how easy it is to transfer ownership? Is it something that you can say, I paid, you know, 5F for a given a given domain and I want to transfer that to someone else, does that person need to then pay something higher than 5F or can I sell it for nothing? So the uh, at the level of ENS, all it cares about is, is that you want to transfer ownership. So you make a simple contract call to a set owner function with the new owner, um, but the deed goes along, the deed being the thing that contains the, the deposit, goes along with the new owner. So they are the one who would be able to recover the funds if they, they gave up the name. Um, so it, it's very straightforward at the ENS level, but it's up to you to implement something on top of that to make sure you get paid appropriately. Um, I, I guess one thing we haven't mentioned yet is, is to point out that uh, the winners of these auctions don't actually uh, pay for the name in the traditional sense of sending it to someone. They instead lock up their funds in a contract that won't allow them to access the funds until such point as they surrender the name, which they can do any time, at least a year after registering. That was a. That was actually my next question: Is like, where is this money going when they when they get a domain, and why not take a portion of that and put it towards like the Ethereum Foundation or or something that maybe pushes the, you know, incentivizes the development of the underlying infrastructure. 
So the uh, the number one reason really is is both to avoid conflicts of interest or the perception of conflicts of interest, mm -hmm. and to also sort of, I guess, uh, simplify the political landscape would be one way to put it. That um, within an uncontentious system like imposing opportunity costs by locking up ether and where fees are burned. Um, we can argue, spend more time arguing about technical aspects and less time arguing about how we should spend the money. It's interesting now that we've created this, like now that this world is starting to become developed, we're starting to really realize the economics associated with everything that we do. It's intrinsically tied with everything we do and there will be a market around whatever technical development we make. And I think a lot of us, at least like speaking from my own experience, um, that's probably the least amount of development I have in my repertoire is maybe economics or crypto economics. Yeah, I may, I may be a good developer, but I don't understand the incentivization schemes of something that I may develop. And I think some, like, like it's gonna show as we as the market grows, what works and what doesn't based on, I guess, who has better ideas on how to incentivize properly. Like, yes, uh, I, I think you're right. It's, uh, it's a new area for a lot of us and uh, you know, crypto economic game theory is, is a difficult thing to uh, to both understand and to get right. So how do you like, uh, like, where do you feel the, the like maybe on the short term, maybe, by short term, I mean, next couple of years, how do you see the whole space growing? Like we have plays in various and various kind of parts of the ecosystem with, you know, people pushing towards interoperability, people pushing towards um, just like the, moving away from the one chain to rule them all aspect of cryptocurrencies, the, ICE, the current proliferation of ICOs with various use cases. Like, what do you see happening over the next couple of years? Well, that's a broad question. Yeah, I, um, <laughs> I guess from, from the Ethereum point of view, I'm really looking forward to seeing um, uh, things like eWASM, the, the effort to make uh, WebAssembly execute on, on Ethereum make progress. And I think that that combined with some other efforts like uh, sharding and, and proof of stake are going to take Ethereum itself from the current sort of BBC micro level computer up to a you know a more reasonable modern standard in terms of its capability. Uh, I mean, to be clear, blockchain is always going to be less efficient than just doing it locally because you give up efficiency in return for guarantees. Um, like you know, trustless execution, um, but we we can and will improve a lot both in terms of tooling and efficiency in the future. Um, and I think that's going to enable new applications, as is things like state channels through RAID and so forth. May I lost you there? There we go. Sorry, you pause for a moment. Okay. I think it's going to be a while before we start seeing really wide deployment to consumer facing stuff. Uh, the, the comparison I like to make is that it was something on the order of uh, four years between, or, or possibly even longer, between uh, the internet first becoming available to consumers and the first person ordering a pizza. Mm -hmm. so, so it's not unreasonable to expect a fair bit of infrastructure growth before um, smart car charging stations in Germany that, that run on the Ethereum public blockchain. Um, I think most of the ICOs are probably going to fail because most startups fail, um, regardless of, of what they're doing. Um, but some of them are going to, to have the right idea and, and do astonishingly well. Um, and it's those that are going to probably provide us with our first uh, sort of killer apps and, and amazing use cases where, where anyone will go, 
well, clearly we couldn't have done that without the blockchain. Mm -hmm. um, of course, if I could predict which ones those were, then I would probably be immensely wealthy already. But um, <laughs> I, I think it'll be very interesting to watch some of them uh, mature and, and see how well they, they do at uh, realizing their goals. Yeah, one one of the like I guess large criticisms of Ethereum specifically is uh, the fact that we like on the forefront or the roadmap of Ethereum development are these drastic changes that that could potentially enable scalability. But because they haven't been implemented, we don't have the wisdom to know whether or not they work the way they plan to work. And so people say that like investing in Ethereum now is a waste of time because of the drastic changes in which we don't know what's going to happen. So what, what do you what do you say in terms of like like the, I wouldn't say investability, but the current use case or current capabilities of Ethereum versus what we plan on seeing in the in the in the you know the future. Um, I think that there's there's a lot of applications that we can build right now that the only reason they're not written is because nobody's written them yet, not because we're we're fundamentally lacking uh, scalability or or necessary components of the, the consensus layer. So I think Ethereum's already demonstrated it can be used to build useful things. Um, and I think that, you know, that there are things that are only going to be writable if we have, uh, you know, increased scalability uh, through sharding and Casper and so forth. Um, but I think that you don't have to rest your, your hopes of, of usefulness on that. Mm -hmm. um, I, I guess I also would say that um, we don't know what sharding will look like or exactly how big an improvement it will give us, but we know we can make big performance improvements from the current system some, without any, you know, blue sky stuff, just based on what we have now and what we know about computer science and entirely unadventurous stuff like improving database representations on disk and, uh, you know, improving transaction representation and compression and so on. We know we can achieve you know, anything up to order of magnitude improvement in, in throughput um, without having to invoke you know, not yet discovered computer science. <laughs> yeah, there's definitely quite a bit of improvements that I don't people see, like realize that we can make just based on how things work now. That's exciting. Like, I, I personally love Ethereum. Uh, I, I, I'm not, I don't want to say it's going to be the future, but in terms of product development or like the technology development infrastructure, it's generalized enough to really take in whatever direction you want, but useful for all of the directions, which I think a lot of places can't really say. Do you have any feeling towards like the current development of interoperability of blockchains and how difficult that may be or not difficult that may be? Uh, it's certainly uh, difficult at the moment. Uh, it's especially difficult between blockchains that weren't designed with it in mind. So, for instance, we have a, a one-way peg on Ethereum for Bitcoin transactions, mm -hmm. but doing the reverse. Uh, yes, exactly. Uh, but doing the reverse is extremely difficult because BTC doesn't have validation operations that can easily validate a proof of Ethereum. Um, even uh, interoperability between other, between Ethereum blockchains is, is non-trivial at the moment. It's certainly a lot easier to do than, than with Bitcoin, but I think that can be improved a lot. Um, some of it through just tooling, uh, you know, better tooling. Um, some of it through actual changes to the VM and the consensus layer. Um, and I don't think it's unreasonable to expect that, that in the nearest future with things like Polkadot Pay 
paper and chart and so forth. We expect to see interaction that's a great deal simpler. So it would be along the lines of uh, the way you could use um, uh, EC Verify today to verify a transaction signature. You should be able to verify a proof of another chain's state or another unlegitimate by another chain. Um, but that's all going to take some some infrastructure that, that people haven't built yet. Going back to to ENS, I had, like, something just popped into my head. Like, do you have any like now that it's th like things are underway and you're starting to see some like behavior around um, creating domains and what people might use them for? Do you have any catch-alls that people need to be aware of if they're trying to get in, get in, and get a name or um, like any insight as to what emergent behavior we might see that may be uh -huh. different than the current domain system? So uh, I guess a couple of things come to mind. Uh, first of all, people should know that uh, we're doing a so-called slow launch. So some names become available earlier than others. Uh, over an eight-week period, all possible names will become available. But for every name you could enter, there is a random type which can first be auctioned off. Um, and although it's drawn a few complaints, this has worked exceptionally well in, in giving us time to make sure that, you know, any first day one launch bugs are sorted out before people pour ridiculous amounts of ether into it. Um, the second is that there is, uh, the, the system itself works entirely on cryptographic hashes, so it doesn't intrinsically know what the plain text of a name is. Um, there is a big list of pre-images, which is a Alexa's top million internet domain names plus an English dictionary that allows determining what a lot of the names people are bidding on and auctioning are. Um, and if your name is in that list, the name you want is in that list, then chances are you're going to have to pay a lot more and you could be competing with a lot more other people than if you pick a name that isn't in that list. Uh, so I did some stats, they're nearly a week out of date now, but if you bid on a name on the list, your chances of getting it uncontested, i.e. for the minimum price, are about 40%. If you bid on a name not on the list, your chances are about 90%. So the first thing I'd suggest is, uh, do you really want to be insurance.com or would you rather you know, pick a company name or a distinct product name uh, that people are going to remember that isn't necessarily something that's already an immensely popular word or an immensely popular domain name um, and save yourself a lot of time and trouble and just, just bid on that and build a, a brand around it if you don't have one already. Um, and the other thing I'd say is that um, uh, although the geeks amongst us like to have our own domain names both on, on the internet and on ENS, uh, most end users don't. Most end users have gmail.com for their email address or ebcn.com or whatnot. Um, and I expect a similar thing will probably happen with ENS um, as uh, more generic domains get bought up. I, I'm looking forward to people putting out uh, sort of second level registrars on that. So instead of buying uh, you know, nickjohnson.eth, no, please don't buy that. Um, <laughs> you can you can buy nickjohnson.mywallet.eth, for instance, and instead of that being a five-day-long process involving a sealed auction and revealing your bid and finalizing the name, it can be just a single transaction, sending a buck worth of ether to a, a contract that then gives it to you instantly and sets it all up for you. Um, so a lot of what we're seeing now, I think, is... is hopefully going to be going to the people who are setting up the uh, the tools and the, the uh, sort of sub-registrars to make it really easy for people to interact with the units later. 
That's yeah. similar to like the, the GoDaddy model of people like, and that's, and I've, I've read things about that in terms of the usability of like your, your end user is that they will probably end up going through whatever wallet software they use to set up a name um, for like, you know, an, an added, an added amount so that that one then gives a financial incentive for wallets to, to continue building on top of these things and a convenience for the end user. Yes. Um, and I think we'll, we'll see that sort of model for buying buying top-level domains as, as well as you suggest. So, uh, you know, for, for a 1% a fee or something, the service will handle the entire bidding process for you. You just give them your money, then you come back to see whether you won or not. Do you have any, uh, I guess, uh, there's been a few different things on, like, on Reddit that compare auction times and numbers uh, versus the different platforms you can use to, to, to register. So like, you know, you can get it through like myetherwallet.com, ethertools.com, uh, the actual DNS registration site. Do you have like any recommendation on what to use, what not to use in, in terms of going about getting a name? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I'm, I'm biased since uh, Alex, my, my colleague, wrote yeah. uh, registrar.ems.domains. Um, but I would say, in a nutshell, um, it attempts to be a fairly. I lost you there. Can you repeat that? Nope. Need a little bit more debug. Sorry about that. You, so, you broke out yeah. at the beginning of that question. Can you can you start okay. over? Um, so I, I guess I'm biased because. Uh, Alex, my colleague, wrote uh, the registrar app, uh, registrar.bns.domains. Um, but I would say that in general, um, our DAP is a more sort of um, fully featured system that, that intends to sort of make you user friendly and guide you through the whole process. Uh, as a result, it's, it's noticeably more involved than the other two. It's also entirely decentralized. And as a result, it's had more sort of usability bugs and so on to work out in the beginning. Um, so if you're prepared for a, a little bit of a rough process that we're rapidly smoothing out, but you want the sort of um, uh, most user-friendly experience, then that's probably the way to go. Uh, my Ether Wallet have done what they always excel at, which is to build um, the simplest solution that can work and then uh, describe it really well and make it really usable for end users. So uh, their solution requires sort of more manual action from you and then you have to manually save a screenshot or a copy and paste of some data in order to come back and reveal later. But uh, they, they rolled it out in a remarkably short time. It's remarkably well written and it doesn't require sophisticated back-end integrations and so on and therefore it generally just tends to just work Mm -hmm. uh, ETH Tools uh, one came out most recently. Um, it's sort of a little bit between the two. It's a sort of semi-centralized and closed source solution, but with that they're able to get more user-friendliness with less complexity because they can simply store information uh, on a server-side backend and give it back to you when you log in again. Uh, I haven't used it personally, but I've chatted to the guy who built it and, and I'm pretty confident he's built a good tool. So ultimately it's up to you. Um, and it kind of depends on, on how much user-friendliness you want and how much time you're willing to spend fussing around with it and also um, what level of, of sort of power user you are, I guess. That, that, that spring point, like, brings up kind of a more of a philosophical question or, or, or discussion. Uh, like you are probably one of the more sophisticated Solidity developers slash smart contract, like know-it-alls in the entire space. And because of that, 
and your previous software development history, you're starting to, you have a really good intuition on the new choices we have when building out the architecture of an application we're trying to make. Um, what trends are you seeing in terms of Ethereum smart contract development that people are starting to, to do or see or, or that are enabled now that weren't possible in the previous software development infrastructure? Um, are you, am I comparing uh, Ethereum smart contracts to sort of traditional contracts or to, to earlier attempts at developing smart contracts? Just, I guess, I guess the, the difference between like traditional app development and decentralized application development, like just within the three um, examples you gave for getting an ENS registration, we saw different ar backend architectures fully decentralized, partially decentralized, simple, complex, that gave different user experiences. And even for something as simple as that, we have multiple ways of doing the same thing with their various pros and cons. So it's, um, it's uh, I would compare smart contract development more to developing mission-critical firmware for, you know, for space or for remote areas or for, um, you know, satellites and and embedded devices and so forth, in mm -hmm. that it's yeah. difficult to update. Uh, the consequences if you get something wrong can be relatively dire. Um, and so you need to be a lot more careful about how you code things than, uh, you know, if you were developing regular consumer software or browser software. I mean, a lot of people are used to developing stuff that either is in the browser or is, has a browser front end, and, and deploying updates to that is almost trivial. It's, it's so straightforward that it's very easy to slip into a mindset of, Let's try it out and see how it works, and mm -hmm. uh, you know, fix it when it breaks. Uh, whereas, sort of smart contract development is the, the polar opposite of that. Um, and it's it's apparent that the, the best option there is is stick the absolute minimum of stuff into a smart contract that is necessary to preserve your guarantees, and then do all the fancy stuff on the front end where it's easy to update. Um, and I think that's something that has been uh, people have been evolving in their knowledge of, of this and how best to draw that line between the two sides over time. In terms of the different uh, architectures like you described, I think it's a, it's a combination of, of practicality and ideology. Um, there is a lot of motivation in the Ethereum community in particular, but I guess in the blockchain community altogether, to try and build applications that are entirely trustless. Uh, and that means building systems that have no backend that is controlled by a single third party, such as the authors. Um, and that's something, for instance, that um, my Ether wallet and, and registrar.edu.domains both accomplish. Um, they rely entirely on only having a blockchain client. Um, and in the case of my Ether wallet, they provide one for you, but you can switch to using anyone you want. You can also download the source code of either of them and run it locally and know that you're you know, communicating only with your own machines. Um, in contrast, the, the ETH tools one takes a more sort of traditional approach, which is, uh, you know, certain, certain parts of the community sort of look at it as, as old and busted, but it's in my mind still a, a legitimate way to build an app, um, which enables them to use existing development methodologies and that perhaps gets things simpler and faster. Um, and it's partly because those tools are just more mature, and it's partly because designing for, for a trustless architecture is always going to require making trade-offs and different decisions that, that can increase the complexity of your app. So I think the main innovation is, uh, is going to be in development patterns and the um, 
the node capabilities and so forth that enable writing distributed apps more simply, um, but also in recognizing when it's reasonable to rely on a centralized or a pseudo-centralized service, you know, when, when doing so doesn't compromise the trust aspects. What about the way, the way like, I guess when programming started, you had the languages that required a certain type of, I guess, um, ideology or programming architecture or structure when creating your application that was more tailored towards optimization and meticulous um, understanding of what happens to memory allocation, so on and so forth. But as these higher level languages become um, prolific and our internet and the internet and main programming practices tends towards front end development of move fast, break things, update quickly, um, then not caring about the back end garbage collection and so on and so forth, the programming practices around that have become tailored towards move fast, break things, don't care about what happens in the back end. Do you think that the the movement of creating dApps and the necessity to care about what part of your application is mission critical will change that that back that the back end ethos of how programmers think about creating applications? I, I certainly hope it will. Um, because uh, if you want to build a good distributed application with, with smart contract functionality, you do need to take that attitude. You need to, to look at it as mission critical stuff that, that can't be updated easily and you do need to, to take a corresponding approach to how to build things. Um, and, and to some degree, I think that's starting to be picked up. Um, certainly, you know, things like audits and so forth and, and good unit test coverage are the norm in, in what people, at least people who are paying attention, demand in, uh, you know, deployed contracts that they're expected to trust. Mm -hmm. um, and I think they absolutely should. Um, I, I think what you said earlier about language focus is, is relevant too. We want smart contract languages that encourage that form of development and that make it hard to write poorly written contracts um, and easy to write well-tested, well-reviewed contracts that do what you expect them to. Um, and I'm actually hoping that we see more development of alternate languages in the ecosystem. I think Solidity is a, a good starting point and it has excellent usability characteristics and it has some very good uh, language features that integrate very well with the blockchain and very well with the sort of uh, constrictive and driven programming you probably want to do to build a contract. But I would love to see um, sort of ventures in both directions, both towards uh, a C-like low-level language that is uh, more aligned with how the virtual machine works, but also towards a uh, maybe sort of um, more functional, more formal language that is easier to prove the capabilities of um, and sort of uh, let a thousand flowers bloom and see, see which languages work out the best for building secure and easy to write contracts. And I see a lot of lost money along the path <laughs> as we figure out which yes. one wins. Yes. All right. I think that's a fantastic way of kind of uh, wrapping this up. And we have one more, like two more. Is there anything else that I should have asked that I didn't ask that you'd like to kind of put out there? Um, let me think. Nothing springs immediately to mind, no. Okay. And, uh, and something we ask all of our guests is, uh, can you describe Ethereum in 10 words or less? Uh, okay, give me a second. 
a distributed blockchain platform for building trustless applications. All right, six words, nailed it. Nice and succinct. All right, Nick, thanks for coming on the show. I appreciate you talking to me. And uh, I look forward to seeing like, ENS become a, a, a wild success and helping people interact with this new technology. So do I. Thank you for your time. All right. Hey, everybody. That was Nick Johnson, straight from the horse's mouth, working at Ethereum. So you're not going to get you know, foundation. better. Yeah, I mean, the Ethereum Foundation. So um, very informative, very awesome. Uh, before we get into our kind of final thoughts of the episode, I want to tell you guys about the Equibit Development Corporation. They're building several apps that are decentralizing the securities industry. If you're unfamiliar with that industry, it's just like the banking industry. It's filled with centralized intermediaries that clear and sell transactions. They handle shareholder communications and other labor-intensive work. These expensive tasks can now be replaced with peer-to-peer -peer technologies. And what that's going to do is that's going to bring the cost of performing this work down dramatically. So issuing companies, dealers, investors, they're all going to benefit significantly from cutting away this part of the overhead. So if you want to learn more about this and learn about their main initiative, go to equibit.org. That's E-Q-U-I-B-I-T.org. Sign up for that newsletter, and their second ICO with new terms are coming soon. So be on the lookout for that. Hey-o. Yo. Well, I did your job, D. I brought us in. My bad. I had to step away for a second. Thank oh, you, good, man. Back. So what, what names are we going to squat on for uh, the uh, Ethereum name system? Pornhub.eth. M.eth. M.eth. I got, I'm looking at a few of them that I'm waiting to, I'm waiting to snag. Are we going to just like, is it going to be the new .com gold rush where we just buy a bunch of, should we well, take I have a few of them. It's, it's like you said, the more obscure you are, the more unique you are, the less you're going to pay. The more likely you are to get it without having a, a problem. If you want insurance.f, you're going to pay for it. You want exchange.f, you're really going to pay for it. Man, we should like we should start taking just all the business like hollywoodvideo.f. Well, think about, think about that though, right? Like we've, we've talked about this type of shit since the beginning. Like, no one wants to mm -hmm. see a public address, public key. Nope. Like one one name dot com tried it for a while. We want to say, hey, send me money to so on and so forth. Like Coinbase is a pretty good job if you're on Coinbase to say, oh, just send money to my email, and they'll say, okay, cool, that works. But that's still using a centralized service on top of the decentralized Bitcoin network. You know, it, you know what Coinbase is going to do though, right? They're going to decentralize their shit. That's why they're bringing Ethereum in so hardcore. Mm, no, they will That's continue. They're going to do, do some. They're going to do some. They're going to do some sort of tokenized system, so they don't have to have be that huge security flub. No, nope. they're going to I say, I say, a big nope on that. What makes you think that? Why they are a law-abiding entity that sits on top of all of these networks and provides a serious on-ramp into the space. Yeah, but and they they're got making a shitload of money. They got they're to making a that, lot of money. There's no pivoting. They need to stay what they're doing. On, they need to stay on course. Right? Now, you notice a lot, a lot of the people of who were previously a part of the company are leaving the company to do new things. 
why do you think they're leaving the company to do new things? Because they can't do those because things inside Coinbase. They can't do those, they can't do those things inside Coinbase. But so... if Coinbase is going to be the bank of the future, which is already where they're trying to, trying to position themselves to be, then they can't be a huge single point of failure they're like not, banks are. Now. They're not the bank of the future. They're trying to be. I don't think they're trying to be the bank of the future. They're trying to be the bank of now that accesses the technology of the future. They're they're a they're a they're a serious on ramp that allows people who don't understand the technology to have access to the technology. Yeah, that's true. The bank of the future are these decentralized exchanges that don't have people or companies running the company. It's a it's a network protocol that does it without any type of person owning any of it. We know who owns Coinbase. We don't think they can release something like that. I don't see it happening. They're making way too much money. They're making some money, man. Hmm. All right, I gotta I go. Know. I think I think we're I think we're wrapping yeah, this up. Yeah, we gotta wrap this up. We got because I gotta go too. Well, today's episode was brought to you by Corn Flakes and also Frosted Flakes. Um, you can find and Windows. Windows is definitely brought to us. And yeah. Windows. Yeah, Windows. And Michael Michael Jordan himself said, "I want you to let everyone know." And Weed, the uh, CEO of Weed, really loves us and is sponsoring us now. Yes, the CEO of Weed. Um, that's a thing. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at the BTC Podcast. <laughs> you can also, if you go to Dropbox.com, we'll send you a link to our Dropbox. No, I'm kidding. Hold on. We won't do anything like that. Um, let's see. What else do we see? We're on the Medium. We have a blog out there. Yeah, I do. I do. Uh, I do. Stuff. Analyses of Corey, ICOs. Yeah, Corey does ICO analyses. Um, which, if you don't know what an ICO is, you should be googling right about now. But he ana- analyzes the ICO, how the investing dollars, not dollars, investing money, value, plays out and distributes. Um, what else do we do, man? Uh, I'll be a consensus. I will be on consensus this week. He'll be the week. guy wearing the Bitcoin podcast gear. I'll be wearing Bitcoin podcast gear or some Novetta gear. Find me on Twitter. See me at this place. I'd love to talk to you, see what you're doing, what you're up to. Nice. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, we don't have... Chell, you got anything to add? Chell's not even by the mic. Ah, he... Oh, babies. Well... Thank you guys for chiming in for another week of the Bitcoin podcast. Oh, yeah. Wait, I want to do my normal guy podcast. Voice. Like, have you ever listened to a random podcast? Hey, guys, welcome to the Bitcoin podcast. Uh, we got another episode coming. Like <laughs> the radio voice? Do they do like the radio yeah. voice? Yeah. Everybody does a weird radio voice. Like, I have a friend who's doing a podcast. Hey, All right. Guys, welcome back to the it. interview. That's been fun. Let's, uh, let's, hey. let's move it on down to the, the next part of the show. All right, all right, Chaz, coming at you. No, I'm kidding. Um, shout out to Zoe Saldana. I love you. Um, shout out to Viola Davis, and shout out to Michelle Obama. I hope one day that you get to talk to Zoe Saldana, and she and she has been listening for all these years, and she has been quiet. And I hope that day she's also divorced, nope. and nope. I can take nope. her to Red Lobster. <laughs> God, I would take her to Red Lobster so hard, bro. I would Ooh, like, girl, girl you gonna get some cheddar so biscuits. Girl, you gotta get some cheddar biscuits tonight, <laughs> Zoe. 
you missed a lot, Cello, but we're wrapping up. Is there anything you want to tell the peoples? Um, no. Can I, can I play the outro? <laughs> yep. Yeah, yeah. Are we done? We wrapped up? Yep. All right, hey, thank you guys for listening. Play.